Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 2nd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court ruled against the claim adjusters in a major California class action lawsuit claiming overtime pay. In the case of Harris v. Superior Court, claims adjusters employed by Liberty Mutual Insurance Company and Golden Eagle Insurance Corporation filed four class actions alleging the carriers erroneously classified them as exempt administrative employees. The adjusters claimed damages for the unpaid overtime they worked. The four actions were coordinated into one proceeding by the Judicial Council. This litigation tests whether certain insurance company claims adjusters are exempt employees not entitled to overtime pay. The issue in part is governed by Wage Order 4 promulgated by the Industrial Welfare Commission under Labor Code Section 1173. Under these regulations, persons employed in administrative, executive, or professional capacities are exempt from any requirement to pay for overtime. The legislature also passed the Eight-Hour-Day Restoration and Workplace Flexibility Act of 1999. This act exempts from overtime compensation executive, administrative, and professional employees who regularly exercise discretion and independent judgment in performing those duties and who earn a monthly salary at least twice the state minimum wage for full-time employees. The narrow question in this case before the Supreme Court involves whether the adjusters met the test of exemption. The adjusters moved for summary judgment on this issue, and the trial court in part ruled that some were exempt depending upon the dates of their employment. However, the Court of Appeal reversed the trial court, holding that the adjusters were not exempt administrative employees. The Court of Appeal majority placed substantial reliance on a series of appellate cases involving similar issues brought by Farmers Insurance Exchange Claims Adjusters. These are known as the Bell Cases. In doing so, the Supreme Court held that the Court of Appeal erred when it applied a rigid rule from one of the Bell Cases. Further, the Supreme Court said the Court of Appeal provided its own gloss to the administrative production worker dichotomy and used it rather than applying the language of the relevant wage order and regulations. Such an approach fails to recognize that the dichotomy is a judicially created creature of the common law, which has been effectively superseded in this context by the more specific and detailed statutory and regulatory enactments. The Supreme Court noted language in federal statutes and regulations that were not properly considered by the Court of Appeal. The Supreme Court concluded that in resolving whether work qualifies as administrative, courts must consider the particular facts before them and apply the language of the statutes and wage orders at issue. Only if those sources fail to provide adequate guidance, as was the case in the Bell 2 case, is it appropriate to reach out to other sources. The Supreme Court did not express any opinion on the strength of the party's relative positions. The judgment of the Court of Appeal was reversed and the case was remanded with instructions to use this guidance in applying the exemption. The Court of Appeal ruled that an injury to a firefighter while trimming bushes at home was compensable. 
Here's what happened in the unpublished decision of Richard Warner versus WCAB and the County of Los Angeles. The county maintains fire station number 55 on Catalina Island. It is staffed by a captain and a firefighter specialist. Richard Warner, the injured worker, has served as a firefighter specialist at Fire Station 55 since 1993. The work schedule is unique. Both the captain and Warner are required to live on Catalina Island to respond to emergency incidents 24 hours a day. The captain and his family live at the fire station. The captain, sometimes with help from Warner or others, cleans and maintains the lawn, gardens, bushes, and trees at the station. Because Warner is not provided housing, he receives a stipend to offset the high cost of living on Catalina Island. Warner works scheduled times at the fire station during weekdays, but he is not at the station on weekends or when he is on call. Warner is required to be available 24 hours per day in order to respond to emergency incidents. He responds to calls from his home 26 weekends per year. He is on call from his home after work hours because there is no place for him to stay at the fire station. Catalina Island residents know Warner is a firefighter and sometimes go to his house to request assistance. When the residents go to his house for assistance, they have to walk through a wisteria-laden path. On the day of this injury, Warner was on duty at home. He did some inventory work of search and rescue team pagers in his home office before leaving to check on the equipment in the fire truck which was parked in front of his home. As he was going down the front stairs of his house, his wife asked him to help her trim the wisteria. The wisteria grows in front of his house and in the pathways. To assist his wife, he climbed up a ladder to do the trimming. Part of the trellis gave way and he fell off the ladder and injured his neck, back, left elbow, wrist, and shoulder. The work comp judge found that the fall and injury while trimming the wisteria was far removed from the reasonable contemplation of the employment and that he did not suffer an injury AOE-COE and issued a take-nothing. Reconsideration was denied by the WCAB. The board held the bunkhouse rule was inapplicable because Warner was not required to live on the employer's premises even though he was required to live on Catalina Island. The board also found the county had no ownership interests in his home, input on its location, control over its premises, and requirement that it be maintained and inspected. The board also found it was clear that Warner was required to work at home by the county. Nonetheless, the board found Warner did a personal chore in aid of his wife and was not performing a service for the county when he trimmed the wisteria. The Court of Appeal disagreed and reversed in the unpublished decision of Richard Warner versus WCAB and the County of Los Angeles. The opinion relied heavily on the liberal construction provisions of Labor Code Section 3202 for support of the reversal. The court noted that maintaining the grounds at the fire station is part of the job duties. Trimming the wisteria ensured safe access to his house and to his truck. The court found that the activity was impliedly authorized by the county because it is undisputed that island residents sometimes go to his home for help. By trimming the wisteria, the petitioner was engaging in an activity that benefited both himself and his employer. 
The Court of Appeal held that a convicted worker need only repay a portion of workers' compensation benefits obtained by fraud. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of People versus Nusrat Javed. In 2006, Nusrat Javid tripped over a cord and fell during her shift at work. She struck her forehead on a tile floor and was taken to a hospital emergency room. The diagnosis was closed head injury. She had various follow-up appointments during which time she claimed her condition was not improving. She complained of blurred vision, dizziness, and back pain, all symptoms she did not mention on the day she was injured. Among her chief complaints, Javid claimed the dizziness prevented her from driving to work. Additionally, she represented on her medical history form that she did not have a history of dizziness. During various appointments, she tested positive for malingering. The workers' compensation insurance company hired an investigator to surveil and videotape her. The video showed her driving her car and doing yard work. It was later discovered that she took a trip to Pakistan while on disability. She was charged with one count of insurance fraud and six counts of workers' compensation fraud. A jury convicted her of four of the seven counts. The trial court suspended imposition of sentence and placed her on four years of felony probation, including, as a probation condition, five months in county jail. She was also ordered to pay restitution for all benefits received in an amount of almost $21,700. She appealed the conviction and the restitution order. Among other things, Javid argued that the trial court erred regarding the amount of restitution she owed. Specifically, she argued that she should be required to repay only benefits that were a direct result of her criminal actions and not the total benefits she received. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished opinion of People v. Nusrat Javid agreed. The seminal decision on the restitution issue is the 1998 case of Tensfeld v. WCAB. Tensfeld set forth a three-pronged test for determining whether a worker is entitled to receive or retain workers' compensation benefits after a workers' compensation insurance fraud conviction. An individual may retain or receive compensation benefits after a fraud conviction if there is 1. an actual, otherwise compensable industrial injury, 2 substantial medical evidence supporting an award of compensation not stemming from the fraudulent misrepresentation for which the claimant was convicted, and three, that claimant's credibility is not so destroyed as to make claimant unbelievable concerning any disputed issue in the underlying compensation case. In this case, the Court of Appeal found that she meets the three-pronged test from Tensfeld. It is undisputed that the defendant suffered an actual compensable industrial injury. With respect to the second prong of Tensfeld, once defendant was injured at work, she was transported to the hospital where the doctor examined her and noticed a visible hematoma on her forehead above her left eye. Finally, although defendant lied about her dizziness and ability to drive, her credibility is not so destroyed because unlike the employee Tensfeld, she did not lie about the very fact of compensability. The jury's acquittal on counts 2, 5, and 6 supports an inference that her credibility is not so destroyed as to make her entirely unbelievable. And now our fraud report. 
Fake companies and corporate shells function as a vital tool to hide the identity of perpetrators of organized medical fraud. Some of the shells purport to be billing companies that form a buffer between the sham clinics and Medicare. Others pay kickbacks to doctors and patients who sign off on bogus medical claims or sell their Medicare ID numbers to enable the shell company to bill the government. Still other shells act as fronts to launder the profits. The key to this kind of fraud, known as bust-out schemes, is to bill as much as possible before authorities catch on. A shell company is a tool that helps keep the crooks ahead of the cops. Attorneys with the Department of Justice in Miami, who prosecuted scores of Medicare frauds involving shell companies, calls this a catch-me-if-you-can environment. A study of recent indictments indicate that shell-perpetrated fraud is pervasive. Researchers examine indictments issued since 2007 in the eight states that have Medicare fraud task forces in place. They found that shell companies were involved in more than a third of the fraudulent Medicare claims identified by the task forces. The indictments and other cases indicate that at least 300 shell companies posed as legitimate Medicare providers and billing firms or laundered payments from Medicare. In one of the largest cases of Medicare fraud ever charged, the operation was enabled by shell companies. In October 2010, federal prosecutors indicted 44 members of an Armenian organized crime ring. Their network, which stretched from Los Angeles to Savannah, Georgia, used 118 shell companies in 25 states. These companies posed as Medicare providers and allegedly billed more than $100 million. The difficulty in spotting and stopping shell-perpetrated Medicare fraud is compounded by incorporation laws that vary from state to state. In most states, forming a fake business is easy. None check the validity of corporate records when a company incorporates or collect information on the beneficial owners, <clears throat> those with a controlling interest in the corporations. And in regulatory news, Cal OSHA has charged a Hanford meat packing plant with serious safety violations in the death of a worker earlier this year. The findings were the result of an investigation the agency conducted at Central Valley Meat Company after sanitation worker Leopoldo Gutierrez was killed in a meat blender accident in February. His neck was broken when another employee, thinking the machine was empty, turned it on while Gutierrez was cleaning it. Calosha found the company did not ensure that the machine was de-electrified and locked out so workers could not accidentally flip the switch on. The agency hit Central Valley Meat Company with nearly $50,000 in fines. The company is appealing the citations and the fines. Several former employees at the plant said that there were numerous safety violations. One of the problems they noted was that employees did not have a way to lock out the equipment they were working on. In its appeal, Central Valley Meat claims it followed all the proper safety procedures and that Gutierrez was at fault. The appeal is still working its way through the process. The Department of Industrial Relations announced the January 1st launch of the newly created Labor Enforcement Task Force. The task force is a collaborative effort between state agencies to combat the underground economy and to improve California's business environment where legitimate employers can thrive. 
The primary partners of the task force include the DIR, the Employment Development Department, the Contractor State Licensing Board, the Board of Equalization, and the Bureau of Automotive Repair. The task force will also collaborate with the Department of Insurance, the Attorney General, and local district attorneys and others in affected communities. Labor and Workforce Agency Secretary Marty Morgenstern said that the goal is to ensure fair and safe working conditions in all workplaces and promote a level playing field for employers through education and enforcement of state laws. Labor law violators endanger workers and have an unfair market advantage over law-abiding businesses. The task force focuses on collaboration, wider information sharing, and use of new technology for enforcement. This should ensure more effective targeting of businesses in the underground economy. And in medical news, a new study says that the Washington-based Centers of Occupational Health and Education improve workers' compensation medical outcomes. The Centers of Occupational Health and Education, or COHES, works with medical providers, employers, and injured workers in a community-based program. Washington State created the community-based COHES several years ago to work with medical providers to encourage the best ways to treat injured workers with a particular focus on the first 12 weeks after the work-related injury. The best practices are aimed at providing the safe, healthy return of injured workers to full function and full employment. There are four COHES sites serving 2,000 providers. Legislation enacted recently in Washington will expand access to COHES to all injured workers in the state by 2015. In order to determine the effectiveness of this program, a study was conducted and published in the American Public Health Association Journal. Researchers from the Washington Department of Labor and Industries, the College of Public Health at Ohio State University, and the University of Washington's Department of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences analyzed more than 100,000 workers' comp claims filed after the start of this program. The outcomes measured at one-year follow-up includes work disability status, number of disability days, disability costs, and medical costs. The results of the analysis showed that COHI patients were less likely to be off work and on disability at one year. The average COHI patients experienced a reduction in disability days of 19.7% and a reduction in total disability and medical costs of $510 per claim. For patients with back sprain, the reduction in disability days was 29.5%. Patients treated by providers using the program best practices had, on average, 57% fewer disability days compared with patients treated by providers who infrequently adopted the best practices. Researchers concluded that financial incentives coupled with care management support can improve outcomes, prevent disability, and reduce costs for patients receiving occupational health care. And in other news, a federal judge approved a $450 million settlement between American International Group Incorporated and a group of its rivals. The approval ends a long-running legal fight over alleged underreporting of premiums on workers' compensation policies. AIG agreed to make the payments to settle allegations that it incorrectly reported the size of its workers' compensation business to state insurance regulators during the 1980s and 1990s. 
The alleged actions resulted in AIG making lower contributions to state-mandated pools covering injured workers without private coverage. The settlement was originally reached in January between AIG and seven other insurers. The proposed deal required court approval. The settlement was opposed by Liberty Mutual Group, which sued AIG in 2009 before other insurers stepped into the case. Liberty mounted legal challenges to the settlement over the past year, saying it was inadequate and detrimental to the interests of hundreds of insurance companies. The court disagreed and ruled that the settlement was fair, reasonable, and adequate. A Liberty Mutual spokesman said, the Boston-based firm is disappointed but not surprised with the judge's order approving the settlement. He said Liberty Mutual plans to review the final written order and anticipates an appeal. If the settlement proceeds, the money paid by AIG is to be distributed among hundreds of insurance companies that were affected by its alleged conduct. AIG earlier separately agreed to pay $146.5 million to resolve a multi-state probe over the same issue. The state settlement won't be final until the civil litigation is resolved. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.